Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 194th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lisa Cooper. Lisa is the founder of Figure 8 Investment Strategies, an independent RA based in Boise, Idaho, that oversees nearly 90 million of assets under management for 85 affluent clients. What's unique about Lisa, though, is that her firm operates as a B corporation, and it's focused on what Lisa calls sustainability-focused equity management, a form of sustainable and responsible investing by building a thematic portfolio of 50 to 60 individual stocks, has helped Lisa to effectively differentiate herself and grow to 90 million of assets under management in just four years since launching. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lisa crafted her unique investment approach for clients, the way the firm crafts sustainable investing themes to identify segments of the market to invest in, the screening tools they use to determine what stocks to avoid in their investment approach, how shareholder engagement through proxy voting is a key part of Lisa's investment process, and why and how Lisa's firm uses direct impact investing not to expand its equity reach, but to garner its fixed income bond exposure instead. We also talk about Lisa's decision to become a certified B Corporation with her RIA, the five key areas of governance, customers and products, environment, team, and community that firms must improve to meet the B Corp requirements, the new processes and procedures that Lisa implemented in her firm to meet the standards, and why she thought it was worth the B Corporation cost and trouble to demonstrate how her business is acting to be a force for good and positive change. And be certain to listen to the end where Lisa shares the unique types of clients that her firm has been able to attract with this differentiated focus, the challenges that she faced in trying to grow her team and expand her reach as her business grew rapidly, and how the mindset of do more for more people all the time can be a great way to launch an advisory firm, but ultimately may end up being limiting to its growth. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lisa Cooper. Welcome, Lisa Cooper, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, Michael, I am delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and talking a little bit about the the world of of ESG investing, where I know you have built an an entire career of a couple of different stages of of working with the ESG investing realm. And and to me, what's can be coming even a step beyond that, which is not only sort of pursuing ESG investing as a solution for clients, but aligning the entire business around it. I know you are a, a certified B Corp as well. I think there are only like a handful of firms, advisory firms in the country that have gone the certified B Corp route, although I'm seeing a few more of them out there these days. And just this overall structure of what does it look like when you align you know, an investment process and a planning process and how the firm itself is run and the clientele that you serve kind of all in one I guess, perfectly lined or at least ideally perfectly aligned path and then go after the business that way. And, and I know you've had a lot of growth over the past couple of years kind of going out on your own and building that direction. And so just i really excited to talk about this kind of path of what does it look like when you pursue ESG investing and a niche clientele that that value that and become a B Corp as well. 
and try to build your whole business in this direction? Yeah, it's been an adventure. I've been in this world of ESG. I should just say ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. So I've been in that world or the social investment world for my whole career, which has been you know nearly 30 years dating myself. And as I've done that work, I started out on the sort of very pure asset management side. As I've done that work over the years, I've, I've become increasingly focused on not just values alignment for clients, but on finding all the different ways that people and institutions can use wealth to change things, to have impact. And so, you know, that's all based on this idea that that you know this very strong conviction that I have that business can be a force for good, a force for change. So when I started my firm four years ago, Figure Eight Investment Strategies, I really wanted to have you know a platform for exercising that in every way that I could think of, really to integrate that idea of changing things for the better in the way that we work with clients and the way that we manage portfolios and in the actual investments we're making and in how we run the firm. I like that framing that you had of, of business can be a force for good and a force for change. You know, it's, they got well, uh, a different view relative to at least some of the conversation out there in the world today of, of some of the challenges of business and some of the challenges of capitalism and, and, and not to open that entire political door, which isn't really the point, but just like I, I like the framing of thinking about what what is it being to to create a business that's meant to be a force for good and force for change. Yeah, you know that's really I think what the B Corp movement is about, if you want to call it that. I'm you know, and I think I, I may even be stealing or plagiarizing a little to to use that phrase, business as a force for good, because that's what B Corps talk about. You know, and, and there are about thirty five hundred B Corps now across I think seventy countries, something like that. You know, all of those businesses, some small, some quite large, are working to balance profit and purpose. So that idea is, you know, gaining traction and the ways in which that can be executed while we're, you know, we're demonstrating and learning a lot. You know, I think the whole premise really is, is around possibility. And, and I, you know, I've been doing this in portfolio management for so long, looking at how you integrate environmental, social, and governance factors into investment decision-making. This is a similar thing, just thinking about how you can create those kinds of impacts with everything that you're doing in your business. So it feels very consistent. I hadn't really thought about it that way of, of what ESG, what an ESG philosophy or investment approach is to portfolio management kind of work. We're going we're gonna to do this investment management thing, but with a certain lens and filters that leads you to make certain decisions over others that the certified B corporation process is, is kind of a similar integration process of how to apply a slightly different lens to the business and your business decisions in in the same way. Yeah, you know, another way of looking at it is we're turning the lens on ourselves and, you know, starting to measure those things that we measure at, you know, publicly traded corporations in our own businesses. And, you know, that idea, I mean, you really feel it when you start doing it, especially with a small business, when you start measuring things and delivering those metrics to a third party, you're suddenly accountable in a new and different way. And so when it comes to things like looking at 
you know, your workforce diversity or your carbon footprint, actually measuring and reporting those things makes a difference. I've been saying that to companies, you know, for a long, long time. Now we're doing it ourselves. So I think B corporations is still a phenomenon that is not very well known in the advisor community. So can you talk to us a little bit more about just like what what is a B corporation? What is this thing or trend or, or movement? I think you said like 3,500 B corporations around the world. Like what is B corporation? What does it mean to be a B corporation? So the terminology is really a certified B corporation. And that word certified is important because you go through a process that involves an assessment and some key commitments that you make along the way to become certified. And that process, I have to say, even as someone who started a business with purpose sort of at the center of it, that process is super rigorous. So for us at Figure 8, we became a B Corp in January of this year. It took us pretty much a solid six months prior to that to do the work to go through the certification process. The process involves an assessment that covers five key areas. One is governance. That's, you know, sort of ownership and codes of conduct and those types of things. Second is customers and the products and services that you're providing. The third is environment and the impact you're having on all the different environmental metrics. Fourth is how you interact with workers and treat workers. And the fifth is how you interact with your community. And so each of those areas involves a pretty deep dive into specific policies, procedures, and measurements where you get scored on each area. And overall, you have to reach a certain threshold score to get certification. There's always somebody going to be better (laughs) at any one of those areas. And so the idea is to keep raising the bar. So the whole process is very aspirational which is great. And it's definitely helped us raise our bar. So can you talk to us a little bit more about just like what you have to do or like what you get scored on when, when you're, when you're getting scored across these five domains, governance, customers, environment, workers, and community? Sure. Sure. So the B Corp assessment includes looking at a full range of compensation and benefits That's true for all of your workers. They look at how many of your workers are permanent staff versus and on payroll with benefits versus contract workers. They look at the diversity of your workforce. They look at the policies and procedures that you have in place to guide issues, everything from maternity and paternity leave to grievance policies. And each one of those areas involves assessment by um, the B Corp experts and and a scoring process. And in that process, sometimes they'll come back and say, oh, you told us you that you offer dental insurance to your to your employees. Can you show us exactly what that is? Who pays what what that looks like? So again, it's fairly rigorous, detailed, and there's verification involved. So the idea of this then is someone out there has like a scoring rubric in the in the workers area so like i don't know what the exact thresholds are but I, you know if at least 80% of your team member is is permanent you you get 2 points and if you have a strong diversity of your team you get 3 points and if you offer maternity and paternity leave you get 1 point and we're going to add up all your points in the category and as long as you get to whatever 15 points in the category you have you have checked the box. You don't necessarily have to be perfect in everything, but you need 
enough points across all the different areas with a reasonably high bar and and you know you are passing the assessment in this area. That's exactly right. And that also comes with guidance that, you know, here's a, a company in your industry that's doing this area that has real strength in this area. This might be what you want to aspire to for the next assessment that you'll have in two years. Okay. And so you go through an assessment, they're asking you questions across all these five different dimensions. I think you said it took you six months to go through this. Just they're, I mean, they're asking you six months worth of questions or like you go through it and then you get your score. It's like, oh, oh shoot, my score isn't actually quite high enough. So I got to change a couple of policies or things and improve my score and then go back to them and say like, here, I fixed this. Can I get my two more points so I can get over the bar? Not quite that. And of course, we were doing other things during those six months, not just you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So really, you know, there's an initial assessment that you can do to, you know, that tells you your areas of strength and where you might want to improve before you go, you know, before you go through the official assessment. So we did that. It was important to us to put some of the policies in writing. So for example, we encourage our staff to ride our bikes to work or to use forms of sustainable transportation. We hadn't codified that in any way. So we did that before we started the assessment process. We put that policy in place in writing so that we, you know, we, we have a set of incentives around using something other than driving a car yourself to work. And then actually gathering all the data and submitting it initially took us several weeks. That's a, a pretty intensive process. Well, there are a lot of companies wanting to be B Corps, so they had a little bit of a backlog on, uh, <laughs> for their analysts to go through all of this. And it's pretty voluminous, um, you know, what we submitted. So the analysts go through it, then they come back to us with very specific questions and asking for verification in lots of areas. So we went back and forth with that a couple of times. And the score doesn't come out to the end, or at least for us, it didn't. And ours was you know, fairly high, so that's good. And then at that point, there are a couple of other parts of the procedure, and we became a certified B Corp. And so what, what else is in the, the process? I mean, just what you're already describing, like there's a, there's a lot of work and steps here. So then what, what else like what else comes through the process? I've I've gathered my information. I've submitted my information. I did back and forth while you know the auditing types asked me all the auditing questions that you would expect of, a, of an assessment process to to make sure and validate you're doing the things that you said you were doing in your application. I'm assuming if someone's score comes up short, they get at least some opportunity to remediate and improve themselves to get over the line. What else then comes in the process? So then there is language, commitment language that you include in your corporate documents. Once that's filed, there's a fee involved with being a B Corp member, like, you know, <laughs> probably most certifications or organizations. And then we had a big party. <laughs> this is in pre-COVID days, of course. And right. I will say that one of the, you know, really wonderful things about, about being a B Corp is that, you know, you're instantly sort of part of this community of other like-minded businesses or businesses that, you know, are focused on, again, being that sort of force for good and that have met those, those standards. And in Boise, Idaho, where I live and work, we have about 15 B Corps, which is pretty good for a small city of, of our size. And it's been wonderful to be part of that community, very mutually supportive, and we learn a lot from each other. That's, you know, that's probably a highlight of, of becoming a B Corp. I think you had said you have to, like, 
change your corporate documents? What are you like? What are you doing with your corporate documents? So it's language that describes that you are taking into consideration your impacts on all stakeholders, that you are declaring your intention to be a business that that balances profit with purpose, and that you are committed to meeting very high standards of social and environmental performance, transparency, and accountability. Interesting. I'm struck in particular by the fact that you, like you basically have to input in your documents your your intention to balance profit with purpose which right in in like a literal sort of corporate shareholder governance context like you are you are changing the nature of what shareholder accountability means when you have set formally set the corporate documents to say we are here to balance profit with purpose as opposed to our i guess our traditional we will maximize the profit in classic shareholder fashion. It's a really, really interesting shift. And it's, it's, it's not far from what's, you know, from the language that's come out of the business roundtable in the last year around the purpose or the, you know, that businesses should take into consideration the interests of all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And so I don't know how familiar you are with with that, but you know there's definitely a movement in that direction, you know, between ESG on the investment side, the language that's coming out of major publicly traded corporations via the business roundtable around you know sort of all stakeholders being important constituents, and then what's happening with the B Corp movement. A lot of it at this point, I think, is language and intention but it's certainly moving in that direction. It's fascinating. Interesting. And and you said at the end of the day there's also just a a cost to this. So how does the how does the cost work? Like is just uh is this an an application cost? Is this like an application and ongoing cost? What what and what kind of numbers are we talking about? Oh, it's an annual fee based on revenues for us, I believe is a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a year. Okay. So like not not too onerous, like, you know, get a certification pay of the kind of thing that our industry does a lot of. <laughs> but we're 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 not talking about like a multi-thousand or tens of thousands of dollars kind of thing. It might be for a much larger company, and that is the B Corp folks are transparent about that, and that's all available on the on the website. So it's like a a tiered a tiered scale based on the size of your business. Exactly. Kind of kind of like an kind of like an AUM fee, but for but for B Corp certification. There you go. <laughs> so help me understand at the end of the day, like wh- why you put yourself and your business through this process. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's, it's one thing to say just, hey, I, I believe in being a business that, that can be a force for good. I want to do that. I'm going to try to run my business that way. I will engage in appropriate business practices. It's another to say, oh, and I'm going to do months of work and incur all these additional costs and take up staff time and my time. Oh, and then there's an ongoing cost as well. Why... What is the draw or the appeal for specifically going through this whole certified B Corporation process as opposed to to simply saying, like, I am going to try to run my business in a positive way? Honestly, for us, you know, we wanted to do it right. I very much appreciate having that level of accountability, having a third party help 
guide how we execute the, you know, the purpose that we've stated we have. And it was also important to me and to our business to be, again, part of that community, which is, you know, community working to raise the bar to change things and to learn from each other. And so I, I guess that also means it's worth recognizing in the context of like our, our financial advisor world where we're used to C corporations and S corporations. When we're talking about B corporations, we're not actually talking about another, like another corporate entity classification. This is, this is functionally a, like the, the emphasis part is not B corporation. The emphasis part is certified. Like this is a, this is a certification process. Think of it like a designation, a designation for your business. So there, there is both something called a certified B Corp, which is what we are, and I'm very comfortable talking about that. There is also something called a benefit corporation, which is another structure. And, you know, in addition to C Corp, S Corp, you know, LLC, there's a, a benefit corporation. And certain states have passed legislation to enable benefit corporations. And the B Corp folks somehow parted ways with the benefit corp folks. <laughs> They're sort of the same, but then they have like a different view of how things play out. So so every industry and segment can still have its internal debates. That is that is the that to me is a good reminder of it all. Yeah. Right. So that idea of codifying, yeah, you know, I can put this intention in my corporate documents, but we are not at figure eight, we're not seeking to be a benefit corporation and change our corporate structure at this point. We might eventually if it's really clear that that's important. I mean, and here's maybe the bottom line is being a certified B corporation is something that can fit alongside whatever corporate structure you've chosen. So it can fit with a C corporation, an S corp, with an LLC. And I guess that's worth noting as well. Like you can, you can do this as an LLC or a partnership. Again, like don't take corporation too literally. Like it's a certification for your business Correct. at the end of the day. Correct. Okay. That helps a lot because obviously in advisor world, we, we are used to designations and certifications and holding those out as as a way to to signal something to the people that we work with, right? Whether that's yeah. CFP marks or something else about our expertise or or I guess a certified B corporation around around our businesses and how we're running the business. So I guess the focus for this, again, now I'm thinking back to the key areas that you touched on governance, customers, environment, workers, community, and sort of essentially all these are different stakeholders. Well, I guess governance is governance. The other four are stakeholders. The point of this at the end of the day is sort of aligning the business and literally how you're running the business, the policies and procedures that you have in place for the business to do things like, you know, stay focused on your customers, consider the environmental impact of your workplace, you know, provide certain reasonable benefits for your workers, stay possibly engaged with your community. Like it's just setting a framework for here's here's what here's what a positive business acting as a force for good looks like. So here's a model. Hopefully you can aspire towards it and we'll we'll kind of give you a scoring system to let you know when you're doing well enough to be a part of it. Right. You said that beautifully. And I think the other piece I just add again is that you're part of this community of other businesses that have are, are are committed to the same things. And so, you know, you're, you're learning together and learning from each other about how to, how to improve in all of those areas. And I guess that fits particularly well into the nature and focus of your business itself then, which has this 
strong focus on ESG investing. And I would kind of presume from that, like clients who tend to care about these issues <laughs> and therefore might be particularly appreciative of a firm that both invests with an ESG approach for their portfolios and runs itself with a B corporation approach as a business. Yeah, I think so. Although I will say that we <laughs> we can talk more about the fact that at Figure Eight we've done very little marketing since we started four years ago, and I don't think you know we've attracted any clients because we're a B Corp. But I think it certainly can't hurt to have that that certification. But marketing is not one of the you know sort of primary drivers behind us going through the process. So. So then just help me understand again, like, why did you want to put yourself through the process? Just, you know, you, you did articulate like a lot of work, a lot of oh. steps getting through it, right? Just maybe overgeneralizing a little, like a lot of folks go for things like designations and certifications, because at the end of the day, it helps the marketing and communication externally. Not everyone does it for that reason. So help me understand then just a little more, like if it's, if it's not necessarily influencing your marketing to hold out to the community and say, we're a certified B Corporation. Do you want to work with us? What What was the driver and impetus for you? Well, the major driver is wanting to do things better, to have a more positive impact in all of those areas, to learn from others benchmarking from the you know the third party assessment process, um, how we're doing, what we can do better. We indeed did learn a lot of things going through this about things that we can do to strengthen our impact on our workers, on our community. We're looking at changing our vendor policies and practices, for example, to do more local sourcing. We, as I mentioned, you know, transportation policies. Um, I can talk a lot about the benefits that we have in place for workers. All of those things are really important to me. You know, I'm at this point sole owner of Figure Eight. I started Figure Eight at this point in my career, again, to use business as a force for change, as a force for good, not necessarily to market heavily, gather assets, and increase my personal wealth. And I know that uh, you know might sound a little different from what a lot of people are motivated by in this business, but at this stage of my career, after you know three decades of doing this work, that's very authentically what Figure Eight is about. So, so now talk to us a little bit more about Figure Eight Investments itself, just like the the business. What what do you do? Who do you do it for? Tell us about the the advisory firm itself. Sure. Let's see. So we started in mid 2016 in a 200 square foot cubicle with nothing. <laughs> started from zero. Today we manage about 90 million dollars for about 85 clients in across 19 states. Um, again, we're based in Boise, Idaho, and for most of our clients, we are providing them with a comprehensive approach involving financial planning and advising, as well as overseeing their investment strategy. And we, in fact, do some implement some active investment strategies and active equity discipline in the public equity space for our clients. And we have uh, a team of five, four of us full-time and one part-time virtual assistant. And again, we have offices we haven't been able to visit recently, but in yes. downtown Boise. Yes. So uh, so are we all struggling with the remote work we didn't anticipate being remote, I guess, except for your virtual assistant who was already remote and 
has had no impact. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly yeah. what they were already doing. She's helped us learn how to be virtual. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit more about what this investment process looks like. You know, you you've mentioned kind of following an ESG approach and in investing. You also just said you like you you actually have a an active management approach around that. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what this portfolio management process is, what how you structure portfolios, what you do for clients in this realm? Sure. You know, investing is still the reason that most clients come to us. I should I, let me back up and say that, you know, the part of the reason that I I I started figure eight was that, you know, I had come from this pretty pure asset management background and I really wanted to be able to work with clients on larger, more holistic questions around how they can use their wealth to both provide for themselves and their families and then do good in the world, right? And ultimately, those are sort of long-term planning questions. And so that said, my background is very much in the, you know, in the investment management world. So people initially came to us for the investment piece, and I think they still are, 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 you know, very much attracted to that. So when people start working with us, we address investments first and we do sort of an iterative approach to planning. So through questionnaires and conversations in the initial stages, we we devise an investment policy statement for our clients that covers, you know, sort of what I think of as, as the, the very first iteration of, the, of that planning engagement, which is, you know, looking at long-term goals time horizon, growth needs, income needs, risk tolerance, tax strategies, and social and environmental guidelines and goals are really a critical part of that. So we put that together and that helps determine asset allocation policy. So the very first thing we're doing with clients is going through that investment policy statement production together. Once that's in place, we do our first take at, at repositioning investments. And then we go from there into a longer term planning process for most of our clients that happens over at least that first round over, or rather I should say second round over, you know, a, a three to six month period. And what the portfolios look like is, you know, in, in some senses, very conventionally structured portfolios, cross asset classes, but then we're looking at how we can improve the ESG profile and the social impact of our investments in every asset class. And so that involves using a set of tools that help us implement that and integrate that across the investment strategy. So I think it's interesting how you, how you framed that, that the anchor point is still a traditional asset allocation process. So we'll We'll have some blend between stocks and bonds. Maybe even we get a little bit more granular into large cap, small cap, domestic, international, some of our our, our classic asset allocation diversifiers. But then when you drill down to implement within those asset class buckets, you're trying to implement a fund stock selection, some kind of strategy that improves the ESG or the social profile of the things you're investing in that asset class bucket. And you, I guess, go through all the ones in the portfolio. Right, right. That's basically it. I mean, there are four tools that we can use to integrate ESG and impact across the portfolio. At least that's how we look at that that sort of toolbox. And one is avoidance screening. So those are things that clients tell us or that we've decided, you know, 
for various reasons, usually related to risk, that we don't want to have exposure to. And those tend to involve avoiding tobacco, major weapons manufacturers, and today fossil fuels. Often other things go along with that. Uh, they're client specific. So avoidance is one. The second is using an assessment of environmental, social, and governance performance, similar to those metrics we were just talking about at B Corp, but looking at those things for the publicly traded entities and incorporating the material impacts on earnings that come from how a company is managing those ESG challenges, really to make us smarter investors. So that's the second tool. The third tool is being active owners, particularly of public equities. So that involves getting doing shareholder resolution campaigns, doing proxy voting for our clients, and and also um, letter writing and petitions and those types of things. So when you talk about being active owners of, of public companies, we're, we're not necessarily talking about active management in like a passive versus active context. This is, this is active owners more in the context of activism, like actually voting your proxies, actually participating in shareholder resolutions, trying to engage as public shareholders to actually use the powers that shareholders have to get management to do things differently. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think okay. the, a better word than active is engaged. Okay. So yeah, so being an engaged investor and using those tools. And so that's really the third set of tools. And and then the fourth is investing directly for impact. That means investing for a financial return alongside measurable social or environmental return. And so that often, not always, but often can take you outside the publicly traded markets um, to do that type of impact investing. And so we blend all of those tools and use some of them to a greater extent than others, depending on where we are in the portfolio. But overall, our portfolios, at least we uh, you know, very much aspire to be free of tobacco, weapons, fossil fuels. And so... How do you how do you implement these pieces as we as we kind of go through them? Like, are you actually figuring out like what what to avoid, which things in particular to avoid, and how to implement that? How are you actually using to assess ESG performance so you can pick what what companies to invest in or not? Well, that, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing I've been doing for thirty years, right? So, so I, you know, grew up in this business doing now truly active investment management, primarily around public equities, all doing integrating ESG or SRI, and so there are many different assessments you can use to look at the performance of companies on all of those metrics, and companies have gotten much better at or a lot of companies, not all, have gotten a lot better at being transparent about some of those measurements. A lot of companies now want to share with shareholders or potential shareholders what they're doing on ESG issues because they, you know, there's an increasing understanding and acceptance that they are, at least over the long term, material to financial performance or that they can be. And so we at Figure Eight have an active equity discipline. And it is a benchmark to the MSCI Acqui and involves U.S. stocks and ADRs. And that forms the base of most of our clients' portfolios. And so we have a team of research analysts that are putting that portfolio or, or doing the equity analysis around the components of that portfolio and 
we've been tracking that for four years. We just went through the GIPS compliance process, which is one of the you know CFA GIPS is the global investment performance standards that the CFA Institute um, oversees. And so we've just been through that process and have a track record we can share with people. We have not yet, though. So we've you know had this challenge that I think a lot of small firms have, which is growing quickly and managing that growth. So help me understand a little bit more what active management looks like in this. I guess traditionally, when we talk about active management, we tend to talk about things like, well, I'm, I'm going to try to buy what I think is going up and sell what I think is going down. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make evaluations of the contours of the, the market activity and training or economic cycles or, or sector rotation or something to that effect. I feel like what you're describing is different because you're not necessarily buying and selling on hey, I think this stock has had too much of a run. Maybe we're going to trim it. Oh, this other one's gotten beat up. I think it's a, it's a it's a deal. It sounds like this for you is more like, hey, this stock seems to be going lower on our ESG scoring system. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> okay. Not at all. No, we are, I mean, I... <laughs> We use conventional, well, we have a growth at a reasonable price discipline. We are using very conventional, very disciplined investment rules in our active equity strategy. The ESG piece informs that and informs our outlook, particularly on the risk management side. It helps us look at things that other analysts may not be watching that may cause earnings deterioration over time. Or where a company just you know is is taking their eye off the ball, you know I think there's a, a pretty good understanding, especially in the academic literature, that that you know the ESG really can help inform the risk management side, maybe even more than the opportunity side of the you know of the sort of earnings equation. All of the things that you described about you know starting with an overall market outlook and putting together our strategic sector allocation and the types of exposures that we want in the portfolio and then you know sort of filling in where what specific components of the portfolio that's absolutely what we're doing in our active equity discipline okay. and again ESG is just informing every part of that okay so how do you actually do these kinds of ESG assessments like i get avoidance screening right we're going to come up with a list of companies that do the things we don't like. And if we're going to, if we're going to buy 200 stocks, now it's going to be 194 because we're going to take these six and we're going to avoid them. Like I, I get how to do that. That's fairly straightforward, particularly when you're buying individual stocks because you just can literally start subtracting line items. I'm still not clear on just how ESG, particularly at the individual stock level, comes comes into this process for you like are you are you looking up stocks in some kind of ESG rating or scoring system did you develop your own scoring evaluation system how does it actually filter into the investment process for you so there are a lot of different ways that the big we um you know all the managers that are doing ESG can look at this so i will just say that what we're doing at figure 8 isn't necessarily what any of the other other folks are doing a lot of ESG labeled product now is is looking or sort of taking a best in class approach so looking at the carbon footprint of all the companies in a specific sub industry and saying Who's, who's got the better trend line? Who seems to be managing this better? And, and then maybe weighting the portfolio more heavily to that stock. 
That's especially true in sort of an enhanced index approach. That's not what we're doing at Figure 8. We are taking a much more thematic interpretation of ESG in how we determine what fits in our portfolio. And we're looking for the you know, 50, 60 stocks that we think will outperform because of multiple factors, but including ESG factors help to drive either their opportunity or that they are managing risks better than another company or other companies in their in their industries that we've decided we want exposure to. So when I talk about thematic opportunities, you know, renewable energy is a very easy one to point to now. And of course that those stocks have overall as a group done quite well. And we're, you know, I think it's safe to say that we're in the process of an energy transition. You know, so that would be a key theme and driver. As we look at things like water scarcity and resource scarcity generally, doing agriculture in a smarter way, you know, being able to feed the planet becomes a very big challenge. So being able to introduce new types of efficiencies into how we look at and manage or the companies that are that are that are in the agriculture space anything along that sort of supply chain, there are opportunities to do that better. In things that are sort of broader, we see that there is academic research shows us that having more women involved at different levels of the company, especially for companies that have three or more women on their boards of directors, those companies overall as a group outperform companies that do not have three or more women on boards of directors. So we can look at things like embracing gender diversity and all the metrics that go along with that as things that help identify where there might be opportunities to see stocks that that are likely to outperform their peers. So we put all of that together for us. You know, again, our job as active managers is is finding the subset of stocks that express or that we think will have drivers to outperform over time, that's very, very different than going into the world of publicly traded companies and scoring them. And I will just say that there are many sources for that research. MSCI, Sustainalytics, which has now just formed a partnership with Morningstar, and ISS are three primary sources of research for scoring of ESG issues across the board. And for us, those have helped inform our process, but they're of limited utility when we want to do that deep dive. So I guess then structurally, as opposed to saying, here's the universe of stocks that score each one on ESG factors and we'll pick the, you know, the highest, the highest scoring stocks and large cap and highest scoring stocks and small cap and highest scoring stocks and whatever our, our asset allocation categories are. You're starting at a more thematic level. We want to invest in renewable energy. We want to invest in smarter agriculture. We want to invest into some broad ESG oriented themes that begins to define our universe of stocks. And then we take those and do our individual stock evaluation to say, which ones do we want to buy or not own growth at a reasonable price approach with the universe of stocks that's been narrowed down by the ESG themes that you're coming to the table with in the first place? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Okay. And how many stocks typically end out in your portfolio when you do this process? 50 to 60. Okay. Just curious because I, I, I know this comes up as a 
as a theme or a concern sometimes in in talking about ESG portfolios, particularly kind of designed this way down the stock level. Like, do you worry about over concentration in certain industries or, or limitations and exposures that you get when you start with this thematic styled approach? You know, in right generic investment performance speak, like if you invest thematically top down in ESG into fifty to sixty stocks, you're going to have a lot of tracking deviations. <laughs> I was going to say tracking error, but it's not error because it's a deliberate investment approach. But like you're you're going to deviate very materially from standard industry benchmarks. And so, right, you can view that as a risk or literally the point. <laughs> yeah, we could if we weren't managing around that, but we are managing around that. So, you know, we look very carefully at sector exposures, at subsector exposures. You know, this is the stuff that I've been doing for a long time. I've worked in environments where we've used some pretty sophisticated analytical tools and, you know, optimization tools to make sure that we're managing those those exposures. We're not doing that at figure eight, but because I've done it for a long time, I have a sense of what's involved and what kinds of guardrails, you know, we we want to have on the portfolio. And and that forms the, you know, the core of the equity piece that we're doing at Figure Eight. We're doing a lot of the other things around that for clients. And again, you know, that's the more exciting part to me is beyond that equity discipline. And I will also say that, you know, that I didn't start Figure Eight to create another, you know, sort of ESG manager necessarily, but I did want to share what the experience, skills, knowledge that I've had the privilege to learn in my time with others and the clients who showed up when we opened our doors had been used to or or were were seeking that and that kind of approach to their stock management and you know over these years we have found that you know we're managing portfolios equity portfolios for clients who have very similar values and as you know expressed by the ESG issues and so it's pretty easy for us to put together a composite i think we've got what really is a you know probably a separate business that we it's both an integrated and potentially a separate business that we can do with the equity management piece but that's just a piece of what we're doing and to me it's probably you know it's sort of the least compelling in terms of the mark we want to make on the world. I will say that we've had very good risk-adjusted returns in the four years that we've been doing this. So there's something that, you know, we've got something nice and solid to work with, but there's lots more to what we're doing than that. So the third category that you talked about is active, engaged owners of, of public companies. So participating in shareholder resolution campaigns and doing proxy voting. So can you talk to us a little bit more about just how you handle and do that in practice? Sure. We do it in coalition with others. And so we are members of a coalition called the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility, which to go see how many trillions of dollars in assets that they represent. But it's an organization whose members include um, a lot of asset owners, a lot of them faith-based, and as well as asset managers that serve that market. And for many years now, ICCR has served as a sort of home for shareholder resolution work in dialogue with companies on issues uh, around um, environmental sustainability and economic justice and human rights. So how we do that is we have had the opportunity to work with 
other lead investors on shareholder campaigns and dialogues. So we've sort of added on to those. We've been in the position of leading at least so far just one shareholder engagement, and, and that's in process and going relatively well. And then we actually, at this point, are still voting all the client proxies ourselves. One of our team members does that, and we're looking at outsourcing that. There are a number of services that do that along social uh, principles and proxy voting policies. Yeah, so I would say, you know, that just back on that, on the question of shareholder engagement, that's really something that separates a lot of the ESG product providers. And it's something that if you're serving clients in this arena, it's probably pretty important to, to look at how engaged is the manager of the ETF or mutual fund in which you're investing. Clients are increasingly savvy about that. They are very concerned when the same company and this is true for most of the major asset management firms, the same company that is you know, touting its ESG index or fund is also voting against resolutions on climate change or diversity. And that can be problematic. So, And I will also say that over the decades that shareholder engagement has been quite active, there has been a lot of change within corporations, usually on the margins, but meaningful change that's resulted from those campaigns. So it is an important tool, and it's one that anyone wanting to do this work should be pretty familiar with. And then the fourth category of kind of tools that you talked about is investing directly for impact outside of public markets. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what you're, like, what does that mean? What are you doing in that regard with clients? Yeah, and most of that fits in the either outside the public markets or increasingly in more easily accessible fixed income instruments. It can be on the equity side as well, but unless you're in the ultra high net worth world, it's hard to touch a lot of what's happening with private equity. So most of it sits on the debt side and and most of that is helping to or investing so that you're helping capital to flow to underserved markets where it might not otherwise flow, right? So in the US, there are a set of organizations called Community Development Financial Institutions. It's a treasury designation. And in fact, these CDFIs, as they're known, um, get some of their funding from the treasury. And they typically run um, revolving loan funds for things like affordable housing, for small business development, for nonprofit, other public facilities. Many of these CDFIs, an increasing number, are raising capital from investors to fund those revolving loan funds. And that experience for investors fits pretty nicely into a fixed income portfolio. There have been very, very few, in fact, I don't know of any losses or defaults in that world. Some of the CDFIs, I believe six of them, have recently introduced instruments that have been rated by S&P and are, are available now on the bond desks at Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, et cetera. And so, so that's a core part of what we're doing in the impact world is investing in CDFIs, whether that's through a publicly available instrument or if it's through more sort of paper and pencil business stepping outside our primary custodian, which is Schwab, and, and investing in those more directly. And then we do a little bit of investing in the you know, uh, alternative space, particularly around renewable energy. There are a couple of funds that we are involved with. And so that's primarily the impact piece on our, our side. 
it's an interesting way to frame it that I feel like the the traditional discussion around impact investing is is still very equity centric. It's you know it's investing in maybe a different set of companies or a smaller set of companies or or companies that are are seeking to have social impact, but it's still very sort of investing in their equity based as a focus. I think it's interesting how you framed it that a, a big piece of your impact investing is thinking about it on the fixed income side that at the end of the day, you know, you can you can invest equity into into certain impact investment opportunities, or you can effectively lend money, right? Buy bonds, which is lending money at the end of the day. You can lend money or facilitate lending into communities or areas that have a, that have a need and try to drive impact that way. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting. I mean, you can take that word impact and think that anything you invest is is going to have impact in some way, right? So, so you can look at impact investing very broadly. We could take the thematic investing that we're doing in publicly traded equities and say that's impact. Uh, you know, at some point, a lot of these terms and different terminology that we use around social investment, ESG, impact investing, sustainable investing, you know, they all mean sort of new, they have nuances in their definitions, but they start to run into each other, right? So that gets a little bit confusing. But for us, the place that you know that that we get most excited about creating that impact is on the fixed income side and especially you know that's where you know, dovetails very interestingly with you know with some of the planning challenges that we have for clients you know around well how much growth do you need how much growth is enough if if the goal for a portion of the portfolio is really you know more around preservation of principle you know, then maybe we can introduce impact into that piece in a different way. And we have quite a few clients who, especially since the pandemic, have come to us and said, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to take this piece of my portfolio and dedicate it, not, not so much for growth. I have enough growth. I want to dedicate this to, to that type of impact investing. And it's interesting because that type of impact investing involves, you know, recycling capital, and ongoing impact. And it's quite different from, from philanthropy, which of course, you know, at its root has a negative 100% return and right. is also from a, you know, from a financial standpoint can have certainly important social impact, but an increasing number of investors are thinking about, you know, number of investors are thinking about that, that is a spectrum and they want to be able to do things in between, you know, being sort of having a growth oriented portfolio and having money that they're giving away. There's this whole world of possibility in the middle. So what what's the it's the like the platform and the tools that you use to to do this and implement this? Are you still in, I guess I call it like traditional RA custodian world? Are you in on different platforms? What's the technology that powers this? How do you how do you implement it at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. We custody most of what we do at Schwab, so very conventional, and we're using pretty conventional tools. Our technology suite is, you know, things people, other people are using. So we use Black Diamond for our portfolio reporting, and we also use their rebalancing tool. And that also, that platform enables us to track all of the non-publicly traded investments in a pretty nice way. They have, a, you know, an alternative asset piece. That works pretty well for us um, to be able to do that portfolio reporting. We use Redtail as our CRM, and that also helps us track all of the different issues that our clients are concerned about. We use Money Guy Pro for our financial planning work. 
We are now using Asana to manage project-based work that we're doing, and we're about to do our first real client meeting surge. So things like Asana are good tools for us. And so, you know, as I said, pretty conventional set of tools. We also use for research of all different types, whether that's market level or equity analysis, Thomson Reuters Icon platform. I'm struck in particular by the use of Asana, which you know, for those who aren't familiar is, is kind of a, let's say is a task management system, but you are a bit more robust than just kind of a to-do list with things to check off. It's, it's kind of a full scale task management and project management system. I guess I'm curious, like why, why Asana as opposed to some of the task and workflow capabilities within Redtail, if you're already using Redtail, what, what led you to Asana or what do you, what do you do in Asana that you can't do in Redtail the way you want? <laughs> You know, so we started using Asana pretty recently for a couple of reasons. One is that it's been really accessible for everybody on our team, especially as we've moved remote to doing work remotely in the pandemic. Everyone on our team can get into Asana and work very well. You know, it makes it very, very easy to assign things to other people to, you know, as a communication tool. So it's conceivable that we could eventually move some of those workflows to Redtail, but not everybody on our team is that familiar with Redtail. And Asana has been just, you know, really easy access point for us. You know, Asana is more of, a, I think, an internal management tool for us. You know, I know that we haven't tapped all the capabilities of Redtail in terms of of managing workflows for clients and especially anything that, you know, that might be externally focused. So that's coming. That's coming. So, you know, we've grown so quickly over these last four years that, you know, we've really had this sort of challenge of, of building efficiencies and, and workflows to be able to manage that in a, you know, in a smooth, seamless way. And that's our focus for this year. You know, we're very, very happy to have the clients we have. We love our clients, but and again, it's a nice problem to have, to have, you know, a lot of demand for what we're doing. We've grown almost exclusively through word of mouth from our existing clients, which is great. So, you know, that's a long-winded answer to your question about Asana versus Redtail. Asana has been easier. That's the answer so far. So, so talk to us a little bit more about this growth path. You, you said like you, you didn't do a lot of marketing. You've grown heavily by word of mouth. You know, you've gone from zero to 90 million of asset under management in four years, which is a, a really big growth number relative to, to most advisory firms, especially you getting started from zero. And obviously it's, it's harder to do word of mouth when there aren't any clients yet to refer you. So you've kind of got to get going. And in a, you know, and in a city like Boise, like I'm not, I'm not trying to knock Boise, but just, you know, a lot of advisors that build businesses, if we look at the end of the day, advisors are very concentrated in large metropolitan areas because there's just literally a certain density of wealth. So mathematically, there are more client opportunities. So you have this fast growth in a in a town like Boise. Help us understand what this growth path is, looks like. like. When you went out and hung your shingle four years ago over your you know, 200 square foot <laughs> cubicle getting started like where the first clients come from how do you get going i know you have industry experience and backgrounds so you were you weren't totally new to the business but just how do you get going at this from scratch and figuring out how to find the clients who value this 
ESG investing approach that that you've got and all the rest of the planning work that you wrap around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 sort of surprised me when we first hung that shingle and put up a website. So we, you know, certainly did do that. And I let a few of my old clients know that, you know, that I that I was venturing out to do this. And a number of them said, sign me up, which is just a huge, you know, huge, I'm hugely grateful for that faith and confidence that, you know, that they had in me at that early stage. You know, the growth was just as you, you know, you've said on this podcast so many times, the growth was relatively modest through the first couple of years, but it was very much clients were, you know, having a good experience and and had told others. But every time a new client would show up, you know, someone would send me an email or we'd answer the phone and, you know, say, oh no, another new client. What do we do? You know? So that happened more rapidly than I thought it would. Then we when we hit three years, then things really dovetailed. And we had lots and lots of people coming to us over over this last year. And you know, I think I, I think more than anything, it's an indication of there being just tremendous demand from people who want to invest well, invest wisely, soundly, you know, so that word of mouth is important, but also to do that in a in a way that fits with their values and where they know they're helping to be part of solutions around a changing climate or around economic and racial justice. And so when they find us, when they stumble across us, or when a friend refers them to us, I think there's this sort of, oh my gosh, yes, this, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want to do. You know, so that's, that's largely how we've grown. And going forward, we do want to be able to tell more people our story. I think it's an important one. I haven't talked much about our team, but we have you know, a, a team of people with diverse backgrounds. I think that's a big part of our strength. And we are very sort of accessible and personable and all of those things with our clients, we really get to know them. I think that personal approach is helpful. Obviously, there are scale issues with that. The experience that we're delivering for clients has been very positive. So, you know, so far, so good. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm struck, right? I, I mean, I think a lot of advisors would love to get started, have word of mouth, just get going, have others refer them and, and, and gain the kind of traction you have. I mean, I think it's striking. I mean, what, what you put out there because of the investment approach and the business approach to what you're doing is in a very literal sense, very differentiated than any other, or at least in most other financial advisors. And so I thought you framed it well, right? That just if there are enough people out there sharing your story, every now and then they're going to talk to someone who really, really values that. Who are saying, like, oh my gosh, I've never found an advisor that does what Lisa does. This is exactly what I've been looking for. I got to get in touch with her. You got to introduce me. I got to reach out, whatever it is, right? Like the, the, what you get when you take a, such a differentiated approach, when you focus in so much with a niche is, when someone happens to come across you who is a fit, it it like business just sort of happens. And when you're a broad-based advisor, in theory, you can work with anybody, but in practice, no one no one gets that moment of like, oh, you are exactly what I've been looking for, just like every other advisor I've talked to who says they do the exact same thing that you do. Right, right. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen for you, Lisa. It does, I think, for the the generic you. 
advisor that you know, clients have so much trouble telling us apart now. That's why they search for us by zip code. Because you know, when you can't tell which advisor is what and who's better, you just pick the one that's geographically convenient and call it a day. I also think, you know, we're, we, we are very authentically what we are, kind of. You know, we only do, you know, sustainable and impact investing. Everything we do has that lens. You know, we're a B Corp because we want to do better things in the world ourselves, right? So, you know, when we start working with a client, there is this very wonderful dovetailing of shared values. You know, that's hard to replicate. I get asked by a lot of other advisors, how do I introduce ESG to my practice, or I have a client who wants, you know, who who really wants to invest the way, you know, the way you do, the way you're describing. There are there are some wonderful funds, and you know, there's 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 there are other tools to help people, you know, along that path. I've mentioned a couple of them. You know, there's a trade association that's the Forum for Sustainable and Impact Investing, which is great. US CIF is their acronym. All of that is is out there, but. But I will say that it's much, much harder to do this if it's not all you're doing. It doesn't resonate with clients the same way. It's not as, you know, you just don't have that shared experience. When we start working with a client, you know, the journey that we're going on is around, okay, let's figure out how all the things we need to do to make your wealth grow and work for you the way that you need for you and your family. And then, you know, once we've done that and we've sort of explored, you know, what enough is, how that's defined, how do we move beyond that? Starting from that point is a really wonderful thing. That's the thing that excites me so much about where we are now at Figure Eight and the business that we're doing. You know, as I said, I've done the, you know, sort of the active equity management with using all the tools of avoidance and ESG integration and shareholder advocacy and all those things. That's great, but that's just one component of this larger journey about, you know, how do, how do we start to think about where we fit in to this, you know, this larger picture? And I think a lot of those issues have become much, much more present now with the pandemic, with the pandemic laying bare so many of the economic injustices that underlie our economy. I know I'm starting to get a little bit political here, but you know, this is our clients share those values. And it, these ultimately are the deep questions that they're asking and we're asking them too. That's what we want to do with them. Well, and I think again, that that's what makes the, that's what makes it work is to like, how does word of mouth get you to 90 million of assets under management in, in, in four years, right? When there's a certain certain subset of clients out there, at least for whom this really is a driving interest and passion, right? I mean, I can imagine the I can imagine the conversation when you know w- one of these prospective clients learns about your services, and heck, if they if they've got some dollars, they maybe have an existing advisor, so they go to their existing advisor and like, well, I just heard about this, you know, the, this in this this ESG investing thing. Like, I'm kind of interested in it, and 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 the advisor says, "Like, well, we can do that for you here too. I mean, we can do that. Like, we can, you know, there are some ESG funds. Like, we can allocate some of your dollars into those. And and like, you can, you you can, you can offer that as one of the things that you offer. But as your track record, Lisa, has, has sort of demonstrated on this, at the end of the day, those clients still made a switch. Right? Like, any of them who had an advisor had someone that could have offered them some ESG." 
products, solutions, something to get implemented. But at the end of the day, the client just didn't pick someone who could sell them that product. They picked someone who actually aligns with their beliefs that that investing style happens to also represent and align with. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, it's not just the investing style. It's this more holistic set of, you know, of, of planning issues around, you know, really exploring what's, what do I need? What's my role in the larger society? What's my wealth's role? What can I do with that? Where do I fit? So, yeah, absolutely. And I also want to say that at the same time that I'm so proud of what we're doing at Figure Eight and the way we're working with clients, I also think that what's happening with the increasing popularity of ESG across this advisory space is fantastic. It's, you know, it's moving the needle. It's all good. It may not be how I define, I personally define, you know, the lines between sort of what fits as ESG and what doesn't, but it is all progress and um, I'm really glad to see it. And so then help us understand a little bit more just how do you define the the clientele that you're going after? I mean, we've talked about the the investment and planning process of what you do for them and that it aligns for them and that's part of what what appeals to them. But like how, how do you think about the clientele themselves when you're trying to figure out who's who's a good fit for us? Ultimately, how are we going to find them and 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 engage them? How do you think about the clientele? in this, in this model? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that, you know, we have this really super awesome psychographic niche, right. Of people with shared values, but they look really different. If you look at, you know, traditional demographics, which, you know, can be a real challenge with serving them. Right. So, you know, with this, this very diverse set on, on traditional demographic metrics. So, you know, our current clients fall into a few key buckets. One, people with inherited wealth. And they, you know, these folks have been drivers of social investment since the beginning. I think that, you know, people have had a long time to really think about what their wealth means. That's intergenerational. And for us, those clients tend to be you know, relatively young. They're often female, though not, not all. So that's one piece. And many of them are also working and earning income but they also know that they have this inherited wealth to, you know, to fall back on. So that's one. Two, we have a pretty significant set of people who hover around retirement. They're approaching retirement age or they have just recently retired. And so they have all the same sort of planning and lifestyle challenges that any other, you know, folks that are retiring would have. And then we have a pretty significant set of what we're calling emerging investors. And those are folks who are earlier, you know, and perhaps very early on in the building wealth and, and investing. And a lot of our emerging investors come from diverse backgrounds. Um, you know, part of our mission is to have a di- more diverse team that serves people from more diverse backgrounds, particularly underserved backgrounds. So whether that's people from immigrant or minority communities or lower income communities where, you know, there is a very low level of financial access and literacy. In our next um, phase of figure eight, we want to put a set of services around that. And I know, you know, that you've had a number of people on the podcast that share that that mission, I'm so excited to you know to know that there's a significant number of you know, CFPs and RIAs out there wanting to serve those folks. We're among them, and we have some of those on our client roster now. Are people who would fit in that 
emerging investor category, we'd like to do a lot more going forward, which will probably involve a you know, sort of community-based learning approach and, and practice. Well, I'm, I'm struck just by the, you know, the nature of what happens when you take on this kind of niche, as you noted, this sort of psychographic, this niche, this, this niche around certain preferences that people have in the marketplace as opposed to doctors or architects or retirees or something that's age-based or, or simply something that's wealth-based, like, you know, you must have a million dollars to ride this ride, that you, you, like, you, you've got prospective retirees and older clients who come to the table with one set of planning needs. You've got young people who might be even wealthier because they came to the table with inherited wealth. And you've got young people who may have little to no wealth because they're emerging investors, but they also care about this from a different frame. So I guess that does make me wonder, like, how, do, how does your fee model work and how are you charging clients when you're getting people all across the age spectrum, all across the wealth spectrum, potentially very different planning needs, depending on what context they're coming from? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, <laughs> great questions. And so we still have a very traditional AUM model that works pr pretty well for, you know, the retiree segment and the inherited wealth segment. And I say pretty well because because, you know, because our firm is running and profitable and that's that's worked so far. We know we need to change it. It's part of why I decided to enroll in the Limitless Advisor program, which has been fantastic. We actually were about to change our fee schedule. I'm glad we didn't, but when the, when the pandemic hit. And most likely where we'll be going with that is that for those more conventional clients, we will keep the AUM schedule as, a, as, a, as an ongoing fee, but also introduce likely a, a fee-based planning piece, at least for the first year for the more intensive planning work that we're doing together that we, you know, we all know is, is involves as well. It's just very involved and, and has, you know, value on its own. And I think that, you know, as I think about that, and as I proceed with the Limitless Advisor Program and, you know, get to know lots more people in the planner community, I think there are real possibilities for partnering with people on that because, you know, as we have clients who have specific planning challenges, whether that's medical professionals or people with, you know, adult special needs kids or, you know, somebody who has a very specific type of, of, of business. I keep thinking of, you know, Adam Schmela, who I know has been on your, on the podcast, who in the Limitless program is one of the coaches and, and is sort of the poster child for focusing with your niche. He works with optometrists almost exclusively, which is wonderful. I think a lot, you know, if I ever, if we have an optometrist who shows up, you know, at figure eight with shared values and all of those things, there's no way I'm not going to call Adam and say, what do I do? I need to, you know, I don't know those things that are specific to someone who's running an optometrist practice. So I think that as we think about the planning challenges, you know, going forward, that it probably means a different fee structure. And it may also mean that we're doing some outsourcing and partnering around the very specific issue-based planning. And and I will also say that I hope that that's, you know, mutual eventually, because I think we have something to add, you know, to folks who fit in a demographic niche, but who also have those real questions about how do I, how do I give back or how do I think about the wealth that is beyond enough for me and what I can do with it. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? 
I think, you know, the, the biggest, well, some of the biggest challenges have, have come around people. People are, you know, I say that, especially as we've, you know, built our staff, both from conventional sort of, you know, talent pipelines and unconventional ones, no matter the pipeline, people, you know, are complicated. And I think that's also led to, I know, I know that you're probably going to ask about the low point for us, which, you know, came probably about a year and a half in and, and related to, you know, to just personal challenges. And I think I hadn't thought through enough what happens when you hire people and give them opportunities to train, to learn your specific brand of business. And then life happens and they're, and, and maybe they're not able to continue. And that happened to us in pretty rapid succession, right about a year and a half in. And we had two people who, because of relationship issues, left one of them, a relationship that broke up and one, a relationship that ended up being not in Boise, <laughs> left us for those reasons. And then, and then one person, a key person who had been running our client services, got very ill, terminally ill. And and I have to say that 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 impacted us in every way. It was sad and awful and really super challenging from a business perspective because she desperately wanted to work. We desperately wanted her to be able to work, and yet she couldn't. And and all of that, all the challenges around that, were a huge surprise to me. Not just not anything I had anticipated. And so I learned a lot through it. We got past it. A couple of our other employees who are still part of our team went way outside their comfort zones to help us get through it. We eventually made, you know, another great hire. So, you know, and again, when we hit three years, things really started to gel. But yeah, I think that the personal challenges of our staff have really been the things that, that, that surprised me the most, how that's impacted our business. So you said you learned you learned a lot going through it. Like, are there, you know, takeaways or things that you would have done differently, or just sometimes life is random and business is random and things just happen? Like, what? You know, yeah, you know, I think one of the things I learned is for a small business owner, even from the earliest stages, disability insurance and life insurance have a role to play. Not something I had really been putting in my calculus from the, you know, from the very beginning, especially with young employees. Now we have those things in place. Meaning offering and making it available to them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Because that challenge of having an employee who, who can't work, who wants to work where you've been their you know, primary s- support, you know, source of income. It's a hard thing to, you know, it's just a hard thing to carry emotionally, morally, and financially. You know, so that's a pretty concrete takeaway is, is, is those things that we help people with, you know, from a personal standing planning standpoint, um, even from the earliest stages of a business, you know, have a role to play. It's hard to get disability insurance, by the way, if you're a small business and you haven't been in business for very long. Yep. But, Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Ironically, one of the areas where a lot of like our, our industry membership associations often still play a role because there's a least a moderate amount of group disability you can still get through organizations like FPA and NAPFA. It's, you know, maybe not the most robust coverage relative to what you can get individually underwritten, but depending on the stage of the business and, and age and health, you may not be able to get individually underwritten disability insurance and getting something in place may be better than, than having nothing in place. 
Absolutely. And that is my, you know, that's, that's absolutely my key takeaway. So, but also, you know, from that, as I said, it was, you know, surprising to me, you know, also pleasantly surprising to me was again, that, you know, how we got through it, that we got through it, our team showing commitment and being able to, you know, to sort of persevere through something that I, you know, a time when I wasn't sure I could see how we could, you know, we could keep going or serving clients, you know, at least, or it was hard for me to see past that, you know, here we are on the other side of it and it's good. So what got you through that? Well, in part, as I said, uh, the resilience of our other team members, in part, sheer grit, <laughs> mm-hmm. in part, the fact that, you know, to our clients, they were still, you know, having, we were still providing them with the experience they expected. And I really desperately wanted to be able to keep doing that. So I was very motivated to get through it. And as I said, we, you know, we were very fortunate to be able to make, you know, a, a couple of key hires and one in particular you know, that helped us get to the next level. So. So as you look back now, you know, a couple of years and, and 90 million of AUM in, is there anything you wish you could go back and do differently as you were launching it and getting it started? Like, is there stuff you know now that you wish you could have known then when you were launching this? Yeah. <laughs> I wish that back then that I had had the confidence that I have now. Now I know that I'm very, very confident that what I personally have to share with the world, with my growing professional team, with with our clients, is something that has you know a lot of value. I think I still had a lot of doubts when we started, and of course, you know, you don't know what's going to work. I, I wish I could go back and tell myself that. I wish that I had said no to a lot more things <laughs> from the beginning, in particular, getting involved with some, you know, sort of tangential things, especially, you know, sort of charitable things that appeal, but that take time and maybe weren't the best focused use of my time at that time. You know, I think when I started, I had this sort of mantra that I would say to myself that I would have repeated a lot more often. <laughs> it's, it, it resonates a lot now, which is, you know, do what you can with what you have from where you are, which I guess you know Teddy Roosevelt said originally. But I would I wish I had chanted that to myself every day because I think that's really what this is about and what keeps me going now. So I'm curious as well. Like maybe it's part of the the Roosevelt quote, but like what what would you have said to yourself to not go do all those slightly tangential charitable things that I'm sure felt really good and appealing at the time, but in retrospect, maybe weren't the best use of time, right? Like it's, I feel like it's one of those areas. It's always easy after that to say, I wish I hadn't done that. But in the moment, like then we still keep saying yes to them because, you know, it's something we want to help or someone in need, or they made a really good ask and they told a compelling story. Like, what would you, is there something you actually would have said to yourself to try to dissuade yourself from this? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and it goes back to a lot of the work that we've been doing in the Limitless Advisor Program, which is around, I don't know, the book Essentialism has really resonated with me. That's one of the pieces of the curriculum. You know, this idea that that 
if you want to do big things in the world, you have to do those big things, which means that you can't do all these other things. And that for someone like me who has strong perfectionist tendencies and strong, you know, just I'm ambitious and I don't want to let people down and I don't want to say no, that to be able to do those big things, you need to stay focused on them. And in fact, perfectionism and ambition can get in the way of doing those those big things. So I understand that intellectually now in a way that I didn't understand at all. You know, back just a couple of years ago, I think my mindset was do more all the time. Don't let folks down. Even if I had that kind of, you know, oh boy, you can't take on one more thing, Lisa. Even if I had that feeling, I'd still, you know, my brain would be saying, come on, you got to do more, you got to do more, you got to do more. Now, you know, I have that intellectual understanding that, yeah, focusing on your highest and best use is a really important thing. And I'm working on the emotional sort of mindset side of, of, you know, sort of not giving into those perfectionist things and really checking myself and saying, no, you don't have to do everything and you don't have to do it all now, you know? So that's, that's it. So what advice would you give to advisors that are interested in going further down this road of ESG investing and impact investing and some of what you talked about? You, most, most advisors do not have your depth of experience. You, we didn't get to talk about the fact that you've done this for li- literally several decades in a wide range of large institutions that you, you have an extremely rich expertise and skill set around ESG investing and being able to do it down to an individual stock management level that just is not necessarily where a lot of advisors are. Either they don't have that level of expertise or they just don't have the systems and structure in place to be able to manage portfolios at that level. So for those who may not have that same kind of expertise and capabilities that you do, but they want to start going this direction, like where would you tell advisors to, to start focusing? Yeah, I think there are a couple of really key tools. There's some wonderful things out there that, you know, resources that can help. So one is, I just call it sort of our trade association, but US SIF used to stand for the US um, Social Investment Forum. Now it, it doesn't stand for that at all, but it's the forum for sustainable and responsible investing, I think. But they have wonderful educational materials conferences, things geared towards advisors. They've actually partnered with the College for Financial Planning to do a specialized certification in sustainable impact investing. That's the, There's a like chartered SRI advisor designation now, chartered SRI counselor. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, you know, don't know a lot about it. I don't know if you do, Michael, but I'm so glad to see that. And so that's a, you know, that's a function of USF. USF also has a membership directory, so it can be helpful for anybody who's seeking to do more of this business. And they also have sort of a portal into all sorts of product and whether that's separately managed accounts or mutual funds or ETFs that use all the tools that that sustainable and impact investors want to use. So that's resource number one. Resource number two is there's a a nonprofit called As You Sow, S-O-W. And they have, in the last couple of years, come out with a really terrific set of screening tools that can be used on any mutual fund or ETF that holds U.S. equities. And there's a, a fossil-free fund screener, a weapons-free fund screener, a tobacco screener, a gender screener. And they can both tell you what exposures any given fund has and can help you find 
product that might fit for your clients. But they're also a really great way to see the full range of issues that investors and clients who want to do this type of investing, you know, the things that they're interested in, the things that they're watching. And the other thing to know is that those as you so screeners have become very popular with the end user market kind of. So it, it would not be unusual at all for a client to come in and say, oh, I just took the funds that you invested me in and you know put them through those screeners. And here's what I found. So anyone wanting to do this business should definitely take a look at those. I think those are really wonderful places to start. And I will also say that I'm very happy to talk with other advisors that are looking to, you know, learn about ways to get into this business because, you know, it's important to me to promote the concept, the tools, and be able to help serve those clients who, who want to use their wealth for good. I appreciate that. And again, for those who are listening, this is episode 194. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 194, we'll have links out to US SIF and as you so and uh, how to reach Lisa directly through her website or LinkedIn. So you can connect as well if you want to. So Lisa, as we as we come to the end, you know, this is a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people and, and even different things to us as we go through the stages of our career. So, you know, you're you're both building this incredibly successful advisory firm that's grown very rapidly in a few years, even as you noted earlier, like wealth building, uh, an advisory firm for wealth building wasn't actually the focus, although it, it may happen to work out well that way. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I think I want to be a catalyst to show that, you know, some parts of this business can be done a little bit differently that we can open doors to both professionals of different backgrounds, more diverse backgrounds, and to serve clients of more diverse backgrounds. I want to, through that, make it possible for you know, a whole lot more people to be able to invest both wisely and with impact. You know, with figure eight, it's I think I feel successful if I'm I'm able to build something that's, you know, beyond myself that sustains me, that you know, provides those opportunities for the next generations of finance professionals and impact-focused clients. also want to be able to get on, on the beautiful trails here in Boise regularly. So that's part of my you know, sort of personal life balance success. Yeah, I guess the one good thing about the pandemic, at least for something that otherwise shut us down, we, we are at least still able to go outside and walk and hike and enjoy a little bit of nature. I moved to Boise 20 years ago because I fell in love with the landscape here. And in 20 years, there has not been a day when I, you know, when I don't wake up and say, oh my gosh, I get to go, you know, be in these surroundings. It's wonderful. And through the pandemic, it's, you know, meant more than, than ever. So yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. 